0: Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content from across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with Johnny Canton, a freelance board game designer with a multitude of successful titles under his belt, such as A Fistful of Meeples, Merchant's Cove, Endless Winter, and many others. His most recent title, Solar Sphere, is currently on Kickstarter. Johnny, welcome to the binge. How are you doing, man? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Oh, it's awesome to have you. I tell you, we uh, there's only been a couple times where we've had people who are like exclusive uh, game designers that just kind of create games for other people. So it's always a, uh, a treat when we get somebody like that on our podcast. I know a lot of our listeners uh, wanted to get get do like game design themselves or development themselves. So I'm sure there's going to be some nuggets here for some of the uh, some of our listeners. So just to kind of kick it off, uh, how did you get into board game design? Like, it's such a weird thing to get into, isn't it?
1: It is. Yeah, um, I was uh, a hobbyist, you know, like so many, just collecting games. And in about the mid two thousands, I got introduced to Euro games and like Carcassonne, that sort of thing. Got really excited about it and started a little collection. And uh, living in kind of a rural community in California, I didn't have a lot of like you know game nights like you do now, where you can just go meet up and find stuff. So I kind of just um, got known as the nerd herder and I owned a little art gallery at the time and I was inviting people over and introducing them to Euro games or finding people who are also discovering these. So there's like this, you know, five years at least of just discovery, getting into that sort of thing. And um, being kind of a creative person, I like to do visual arts, music, things like that. Um, eventually somewhere I got kind of brave enough to make my own prototype and uh, start from there. And it's just been kind of a, a slippery slope uh, since then. So studying and learning and all that. I have a giant board game collection, probably like steered around here. So um, wow. I kind of think of it as a li- library. I like to collect by um, designer a lot. So I'll even get like their lesser known ones besides their hits to kind of see how they evolved to see if maybe I can follow some sort of evolution as well through my, my own work.
0: Oh, that's so cool. So is it fair to say you kind of like, and it's an interesting approach, right? So not only are you um, you know into game design, but you're spending time researching kind of like the, uh, the artists that have come before you, right. And kind of seeing their trajectory and how they evolved. And when you're doing that research, are you looking at like mechanics? Are you looking at how their themes evolve? What are some of the things you're looking for? Um,
1: yeah, I mean, it's kind of of an interesting one might be, um, you know, we could look back at like Ticket to Ride or something and hear about Alan Moon's, you know, crazy adventures of importing games and failures and successes. And then this fantastic franchise is created and all that. And then to discover uh, like one of my favorite designer duos is uh, Inca and Marcus Brand. They did like Village, they did the exit series and all that. And their gateway game was like Ticket to Ride. And they got excited about that and wanted to make something that great. And now it's like, Maybe I'm that next generation, I would hope, of the designer that's kind of like sees that lineage. They love Ticket to Ride. I love their village and Murano and their other titles and kind of see like um, maybe right now there's like a lot of synthesis of these ideas that have been done. There is deck building. There is worker placement. What about worker placement and deck building, right? And that sort of... emergent sort of level stuff i don't know i mean there's probably going to be a brand new mechanic invented you know next year who knows um yeah. but right now it's, it's very fascinating to see how these um get kind of squished together in new ways
0: yeah it is cool so, kind of seeing this um it's almost it, it's almost like evolution right like you, you have the original uh you know different mechanics are kind of isolated and then as they kind of cross-pollinate and, you know, every game that's coming out now is a different combination and permutation of different mechanics, different playstyles, and so forth. And then wrapping those into different uh, interesting themes. Uh, it's a cool time to be in the industry. It really is to see kind of that evolution. And I think you're right. We will start seeing some new mechanics. Um, and I think that starts off maybe with just seeing like a spin on, on a current mechanic. Is, is that fair? Or?
1: Yeah, I think so. You know, I think a lot of people cite like deck building as being like, Just out of the blue. But if you think about it, there's like collectible card games that people are effectively kind of deck building out there by buying piecemeal stuff. And, you know, we take that and just go, well, what if you take the buying and make it in the game that you actually acquire the cards through, you know, game money instead of real money and build it within this kind of context. And so even something like that, that has like a, there's a, definitely a sea change, I think, of games before and after Dominion, right? Um, you know, no no Dominion, no Arnak, that kind of thing. Uh, then you go like no Stone Age, no Agricola, no Arnak, right? So you can't really arrive at do an Imperium or any of these games without following that back. But I think there's things that um, sometimes with invention, like somebody might come up with something. But somebody else might popularize it. Um, that's common across invention in general. And I think it happens a little bit in game design. Like um, sometimes people say the one of the key flower games had the first uh, implementation of worker placement in it. But generally, it's cited that Kalus is like the worker placement game, and then people think of Stone Age and Agricola as kind of like the primordial uh, ones that they go to. And then a lot of people got introduced to it later by lords of Waterdeep, something like that where uh instead of having you know the dry euro theme they brought in the adventurers and the dnd sort of stuff and then that popularized it even more and then you just have this next generation where worker placement just is a almost a household uh, <laughs> word you know yeah. in our in our cottage industry so
0: is there a mechanic that you have yet to um, implement into one of your your designs or are you trying to, trying everything right now <laughs>
1: there's a lot um you could look up um bgg had kind of a list of mechanisms mechanics whichever you prefer Um, but they're kind of strange because some of them were like not necessarily a mechanic they're just kind of like a goal or something that happens in a game and then uh they kind of updated that with um isaac shalev and jeffrey engelstein uh, wrote the encyclopedia of uh you know game mechanisms and they've adapted that Uh, entire catalog into the bgg database and they've preserved the other ones other little fringe ones in there as well and so you know being honest with yourself and looking at a book this thick and almost every two pages a complete different mechanic or a subsidiary run it's like uh i don't think it's honest to think that i could uh, in my lifetime actually experiment with every single mechanic out there but there's ones i definitely favor and there's probably a few that um like player elimination. I'm not really in love with that as if that's a mechanism or a goal. Yeah. And so I probably won't have a game where players can effectively get kicked out by any means and not play the game. Um memory is not something um I think it's great for kids' games and stuff like that to teach yeah. them, you know, spatial awareness, and that sort of thing. I don't think I would rely on something that actually used the skill of memory um uh, in it uh, as a mechanism. So there's stuff like that I kind of avoid. Um I'm not opposed to like roll and move. I think there's Fabulous roll and move games like Cedric, Cedric Sebuchet's uh, new game called Glow. And it's effectively a roll and move, but it's really clever, really beautiful. And mm-hmm. I think even something that's kind of, you know, gets a lot of hate because of, I don't know, Monopoly or old school stuff yeah. can be revitalized through, um, you know, an emergent process of taking different stuff and adding it into the roll and move, dice selection, then roll and move. And it's like, hey, this is actually really fun.
0: That's great. And when you do your design or, you- i've like but word even the de- development of some of this stuff like are you doing the development side like are you layering on themes and so forth or are you coming up with kind of a almost like a whiteboard that somebody could wrap any theme onto like how what's what's your process look like in that regard
1: so i kind of do two different things so it's like some i'm a you know freelance designer and i'm also a freelance developer and yeah. then sometimes end up doing kind of a hybrid of both so if i'm designing just purely on spec like just i'm gonna make a game because i want to with these mechanics and this theme i usually try to think of uh, at this point two or three systems or mechanisms that i think go together in a way that creates something fun and novel and then uh, before i go like way down the rabbit's hole i like to think of a theme that makes sense like why these three things make sense what theme could encompass this and not be like uh, ludonarratively dissonant as i might call it um and then i'll let that theme kind of guide the rest of the design in a lot of ways so if it ends up being like i don't know uh say a western theme thing you have to think of like the tropes what do people expect of a western game They expect like you know cowboy hats horses might be robbing banks and shootouts you know these sorts of things mm-hmm. and so that might be like well if there's a size mechanism or what's the goal over here it might be like uh getting gold right it's not going to be you know appeasing the king of the land to be the next heir that doesn't make sense so um, so I let that kind of drive, uh, the design and try to, I think of it as like thematically informed design. So it's kind of, you know, the carts in front of the horse sometimes, but vice versa, um, as a developer, it's very often that I will, um, walk into a game that's halfway done or more and a theme that the publisher has settled on maybe not the original theme that the designer wanted but something that they've negotiated and come up with and I might help with finishing the game in a lot of ways editing it and also integrating the new theme to the mechanisms that were there before that can be difficult I worked on one that went from being like a trained stockyard game into becoming like uh, a haunted house sort of thing and just taking (laughs) that it was very very hard to do so I almost feel like when I do a screening now I need to uh, really consider like so what's the what is the game now and you really see a clear pathway how to adjust it to this other theme because you want to bring it to the market that way and see if if it's just an impossible task or not because sometimes it's very 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 hard
0: so in a case like that, when you have like a, tra- a train yard game and it gets turned into like a, like a haunted mansion type, like what's the thinking behind that from a, like obviously it wasn't you doing the that, but what's the thinking behind it, th- you know, changing so radically a theme like that? Was it there was a hook that they felt they had and thought, you know what, if we can get this one hook, it's going to be much more marketable. So, you know, we'll sign that game, but we got to reskin it. Or like, what was the... Well, I think... um. Game?
1: You know, I think there's like a lot of saturation and expectation around train games, for instance. So there's like, um, you know, if you like Ticket to Ride and some of these like train game, Euro games, things like that, cool. But then there's also this entire leg of like 18xx games and things like this that um, say, I don't even know if this particular publisher has just seen the the breadth of those. They're long, big games with like a rich history and a lot of lineage. And so I think when you make a train game, Uh, you go into it and suddenly people are like, Oh, is there stockholding? Like they come in Mm. with expectations, just like, I'm going to make a four X game that has these four things, but there's a certain expectation about what that means uh, in the mechanism. And if you step outside of that into a, a theme that doesn't have as many say restrictions or expectations, like you think of a haunted house game, you just go like, I don't know, I guess it'll be spooky artwork. Maybe. (laughs) I don't know. You don't know what to expect. And so there's a lot more, uh, I think, freedom to, explore that space than something that's been um, established through kind of a traditional means and it's similar like i think that with like music or something it's like if you play bluegrass there's kind of a right and wrong way to do it and if you just go i play you know country folk americana you could start to get into like newgrass or these other hybrid type things and you feel this kind of freedom that if you you know put a you know electric instrument in there you're not going to get hung for it yeah so
0: how have you evolved so that first what was the name of that first game that you created
1: uh, that was uh, Kings of Artifice. It was a uh, 2013 okay. release.
0: And then, so you look at Kings of Artifice and then you look at, you know, Endless Winter or some of these more recent toys you've done, which in, for the listeners, I mean, Endless Winter did 767,000 on, uh, pounds on Kickstarter. It was just a huge, huge success. Uh, so congratulations on that, by the way. Nice. Um, but when you look at the, you as a, as a designer, how, how have you evolved over that, over that time?
1: Um, quite a bit. So I think, you know, I, I played a lot of games, at least I, you know, not, I'm not an Omni gamer. I'll just get that out of the way that I don't play a lot of video games. I don't play RPGs. I don't play collectible card games, but I've played a lot of Euro games yeah. up to that point. And I felt like I had a pretty, uh, confident understanding of kind of what was, you know, around in 2012 and what was being done uh, when I was working on that. And that led me to feel, you know, maybe, Hubris or naivety whatever i would try out some of this game design stuff and i think uh there's a lot of learning I, I haven't played kings of artifice uh since it came out i don't think it's been a very, very long time it had a lot of production problems and things like that so it's kind of a disappointing project but my yeah. next one was a self-published game and i think at that point i was uh starting to kind of hedge into working on games but then also trying to study uh game design and it felt it's interesting yeah. that it's not very academic at this point still where you don't go to like you know some indie college to like study board game design specifically you, you study game theory so the video game design whatever else but a lot of it's kind of the wild west so if you just listen to lots of ludology you play lots of games you go to seminars you pick the brains of uh, you know you run into matt leacock and you go so how did you how did you do this how did you do that you know you pick his yeah. brain and see what comes out of it um and so I think there's kind of just been this like uh, student in me that wants to learn about these things, and then uh, kind of with that same thing is like it's very overwhelming. And you go, should I try to understand uh, how to make a you know a legacy campaign, narrative-driven, choose-your-own-adventure game? It's like that is so far out of the scope of what I've played and understand that yeah. I can just focus myself back in and be like, I love auction games. What if I study every bidding mechanism known to man and deal with that or Mancala, like every variant of Mancala that's ever been, you know, recorded, like studying stuff like that is very fascinating to me because it ties right into my, um, my interests.
0: That's cool. So if as kind of paraphrase, you, you, you kind of establish what your wheelhouse is and you try to stick to it mm-hmm. essentially. Right. Um, When I look at all the these titles that you've done, I mean, we've got Coloma, Fistful of Meeple, Sierra West, Lines of Lydia, Merchant's Cove, Endless Winter, Unconscious Mind. From what I've been able to pull off of uh, Kickstarter, they add up to like two two and a half million dollars in 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 funding. I'm sure some of these titles that maybe went straight to uh, retail and maybe didn't hit Kickstarter. I'm sure the number is much larger than that, maybe even three million or or higher. Um, That that's quite. Uh, a resume to have as as a game designer um how have you kind of connected with these different publishers like what, what what's brought you obviously now your legacy i think is probably what's fueling right the the demand to to keep uh, you know reaching out to you and, and having you create games for these different publishers i'm sure it's more them reaching out to you versus the other way around but how did how did that start how did that connection with these these different developers these different publishers how did that work for you it's
1: funny when you like, say it all, just say all the, you know, the games like that and the, the aggregate numbers like that. It's just like the imposter syndrome just comes over me completely. <laughs> just like, um, well, it was really hard. Um, so I, I got that first game published kind of on a whim and then it went terribly. And I was so embarrassed about it actually, that I went back to pitching and stuff like that and didn't actually mention that i had been published before, which was kind of a weird thing to like make cell sheets and present yourself effectively as a first time designer with aspirations. And, uh, I got a lot of rejections. Like there was basically from 2013 all the way till 18, I just got a lot of nope. (laughs) And uh, a lot of, you know, prototypes sent back to me a lot of uh, losing a lot of contests and just a lot of, uh, a lot of slaps of the face and a lot of doubt uh, just going, why am I doing this? You know, how long can I keep going before something sticks? And um, you know, I, I think once it, one company took a little bit of a risk on me, which was Borden Dice. They signed uh, Sierra West. I met them at Gamma, and their you know, Philip is a really fun guy. He was wearing a like a two-piece suit that had like Pac-Man print all over it. So it's like right away you're just like, that guy's a lot of fun. Um, awesome. And so they kind of took a risk on that one and put it out. And I think uh, Final Frontier was a little bit more confident signing Coloma because some other publisher had something in the pipeline, right? Like, you know, this guy's not to leave, whatever. And then uh, they needed a follow-up game for Coloma because they kind of do these like pairings where they have a big game and a small game kind of come out together. And so they said, do you have a smaller game that might go well with this? And I said, well, I happen to have Fistful of Meeples. And they said, "Oh, yeah. well, okay, if the footprint's small enough, we'll throw that on. So I kind of got a twofer on that one. And I helped with development. And then they said, hey, since you're so good at helping with the development on this, would you consider... Helping out with Merchants Cove, which is our next title by uh, another designer. And would you want to kind of jump into that pot? And it's a big ambitious project with this crazy asymmetry. You want to get in on it? I'm like, oh, maybe okay. And so and that rolled into, you know, very successful uh, Kickstarter. That was uh, their biggest at the time. And then that led uh, you know, like Fantasia and some of these other companies to reach out and be like, hey, you know, we saw you worked on a handful of games, you got a seal of excellence from Dice Tower. Would you consider looking at our new thing? And Fantasia didn't have a game yet, though. Uh, endless winter is okay. their first and so they're kind of trying to find out uh find some talent you know get some people together and i looked at it and uh, played it and got back to them and then kind of struck a deal to be the developer work on the expansions and carry it to the finish line and uh, that's kind of like that relationship and that extends into like uh unconscious mind you know their their next yeah. game and their next game we were all working on all
0: So it's it's almost like you're a combination of like a designer, but you can come in almost like a fixer, I guess, right? If uh, if there's something where, not necessarily broken, but something they just want to polish. And you can come in and kind of help, you know, work out the kinks and get a polish so that it's, uh, it's kind of commercial ready. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, yeah, so developer is like such a nebulous term because it's a little different yeah. like software and stuff. And then in, in Europe, they tend to call like my job an editor. So you look at like, oh, Great Western Trail and you'll look down the things that might say editor on there. And that would be yeah. like our version of that. And uh, instead of just being like a project manager, that's just like seeing it along. It's it's more like sometimes you have to get the creative chops, kind of like we we're talking about, to actually do some numbers, add something, cut something out and then stitch it back together without that thing in it. um correspond with the publisher make sure that they following their directions talk with the designer make sure that they're happy with it and they're on board with that or bounce things back to them and say here's what the publisher wants i articulate that in a certain way you send that back to me we work out some kinks and we hand it back over to publishers so you can get the green light and go to the next stage so there's there's a lot of that and it's um it's kind of like a little Swiss army knife thing where I think if I had more skills, each of those skills would get used. Like if I was also a graphic designer, I'm sure yeah. they'd be like, Hey, do some graphic design for a yeah. Kickstarter page <laughs> or something. Right. And so every developer I know, it's like basically their entire, anything they can do gets utilized in some way at some point by a publisher.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about uh, solar sphere. Um, mm-hmm. How did you get linked in with this, with this project? And I'm sharing my screen for the people that are, uh, that are watching.
1: Cool, cool. Um, So, Solar Sphere is uh, Drandi Games' second; uh, it's kind of their sophomore game, and it's in the same universe as Solar Storm, which was a cooperative game uh, that they released. It's a the kind of this neat thing where they do like a kind of a bigger game experience in a small package is part Mm. of what they do, and it's uh, run by two guys in the UK, uh, and they're the designers of it and. Uh, Simon is also the uh, developer for Alley Cat Games, and I'm friends oh, with nice. those guys and do some development for them too. So uh, when we were at uh, Essen 2019, the last last big one, uh, I met up with him and just you know shook hands just like right away, he's just like, oh, you're a cool guy, whatever else, you know. And uh, he circled back and asked if uh, I had stuff to pitch or wanted to work on things, and you know we just been correspondent for a little bit. And then he showed me, uh, he say, hey, would you take a look at this game? Uh, this, the solar stream. I'm like, yeah, why not? Let's check it out. And uh, showed me kind of an early rough prototype on Tabletop Simulator. And uh, I really liked it. I was just like, this is fun. There's some neat stuff going on in here. And so right away, I was just like, yeah, sign me up. I want to work on this. This is great. And they had kind of a little laundry list of things that they wanted to um, integrate, like some of the systems were disparate. And I say, well, how does this system interact with this system? Can a player just do this the whole time and ignore this? And what about this three system thing? How can we make it so these things all tied together? With your player board, with what the other players are doing, and, and fuse things, and so that was like kind of the main focus was doing that, and then also uh, they asked me to create some expansion content. That's uh, there's a little side box that has a couple of modular expansions that you can add into, kind of raise the complexity level from you know medium to you know next click up like that. And that's a so. fifth
0: player, I believe, too, right? So it goes from a one mm-hmm. to four player up to then that adds in the fifth player as well.
1: Yeah. So as a fifth player, it also adds in, um, it's a little like rondelle sideboard. So you get to cooperative or uh, collectively, you get to use the little rondelle by moving these neutral units around to pick up some different things and position stuff. And then there's a little module where, uh, instead of just having your normal drones, you get these little droid drones that are more, um, uh, versatile for what they can do. So they go out in the cards and give you some kind of a, let's say like a backdoor into some things. So if you think like worker placement, sometimes the place gets crowded and it's hard to get in there. These, if you kind of leave them out in the board, allows you to have like backdoor access to these little spots. And so as you're moving them around, you might see a spot that you want to frequent and you think the players are just going to pound on it because they're in front of you in player order or something. You kind of know you got this backdoor into it. And so um, so that expansion is actually really good at higher player counts. So when it comes with the, say, fifth player expansion, because there's not, say, more worker placement spots on the board, it's going to be more heavily trafficked. And so having that little backdoor in with this little uh, robot expansion uh, really kind of helps push that along.
0: So this campaign is doing very well. I mean, it's uh, already, I'm going to put this in Canadian dollars because it always sounds bigger, mm-hmm. but about uh, 117,000 <laughs> on a goal of 17,000. So 10x uh, the goal. Still got uh, just under uh, three days ago, so 70 hours left. Um, and almost 1,500 backers, which is just incredible. So this is obviously doing very well on Kickstarter. Congratulations on that. Can you talk about kind of the general gist of how to play the game. So is, is my understanding from this is there's like a Dyson sphere that you're trying to build. Is that is that fair?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're trying to you know basically build the structure and, and get the energy from the sun sun out there like that. And uh, in so doing you're kind of um, employed by corporations to go do this task and make it, make it good. And then there's kind of this outside, um, force it's kind of like an ai force that's interfering with that so you got to kind of like shoo off the baddies oh, while cool. you're while you're doing that yeah, and yeah. um if people are maybe familiar with games like um you know like lancaster where you have to like there's a little battle going on, on the side you got to put some of your knights down there to battle that or my own game coloma where you're doing your thing but then there's these bandits coming into town you got to you know put some guys up in the shootout to kind of get the bandits to go away it's kind of like that mechanism where there's there's this little outside pressure but there's a lot of rewards also to be gained by you know, contributing to that sort of thing. So you want the well-being of the place to be in check. And then you've got that which you're building, which is basically, you know, populating all these hexes, uh, make up the sun disc. And uh, it's kind of the, the third leg of the game is um, hiring different crew cards, which gives you these kind of once per round special abilities. And turn the card sideways and it does something for you. So you can kind of build this nice little engine in your tableau. And uh, it's kind of a short game with not a lot of turns. So it's very, very hard to do everything to the maximum you have Mm. to let something kind of go or or fit in where somebody else isn't and see if you can you know run lean on something but you can't really ignore everything because it's so important to catch each of these things there's kind of this nice overall pressure of those three systems going on
0: that's cool and And it's it's a dice placement at its core i guess
1: yeah yeah so uh so one of the cool mechanisms in there is uh, at the start of your turn let's say uh, if people are familiar with like castles burgundy or something where you roll some dice and then you can use each value to perform an action so in this one you roll three dice and uh you sum up the dice and that's going to tell you your player order so it kind of favors one sum and then also if you've rolled a lot of duplicates or a lot of low numbers you get compensated with uh this morale track which kind of goes up if you roll really high numbers and a of unique numbers it doesn't go up as much so effectively if you say roll badly in the game you get a lot of this other thing that's really really cool and if you roll really well and you have these dice well you don't really get as much fluff so uh it's kind of a cool way to look at instead of like you know oh let's just have lots of dice mitigation where uh you know if i roll badly i'll just spend this stuff to change the values it's more like if you roll funky, you end up with this other sort of fluid resource that you can then use this morale to unlock and do a lot of different things with it. So sometimes you're just sitting here going like, I really want a low roll just so I can kind of fill up that tank. Yeah. And other times you're like, you know, Oh, you know, I get, you know, two fives and a six, let's go to town. Right. So, um, so it's kind of a cool little front loaded mechanism and you can resolve that all by yourself. It you a turn, everybody rolls, you adjust that mm-hmm. stuff and you kind of see what you've got and then you go out to the different places that will require different values, odds, evens um, and so on and so forth like that.
0: And then why the decision to do the expansion at the same time as the core game? Like one, one approach might be to launch a core game, get all the Kickstarter funds on that and then come back like eight months later and then do the expansion and then kind of hit the whole audience again. Um, what was the team's kind of thinking behind that kind of doing them both at the same time?
1: Well, that's actually been common with uh majority of the projects I've worked on. And I think hmm. it's just something that's going on right now where if we thought about, you know, when I, when I was getting into this stuff, a game would come out and if it was successful, you might get, once a year a new map comes out for it or like carcassonne a new box that has some new tiles and a couple you know funky meeples and that kind of thing and so i think it was kind of like if a game was successful in imprint and had a lot of repeat audience people wanted more from the game and want to continue to freshen it up and so people would um, they kind of go go ahead and do it that way where then i think things have changed to the point where we don't have a lot of shelf life, especially for Kickstarter games because sometimes Mm. distribution is a little strange. Sometimes these indie games don't end up someplace. And if, if for instance, you know, the base game sells out, then the expansion comes out is the base game available then to bring in the expansion. And, uh, And people are, I think, having a harder time with the heuristic trick where it's like, if I see a game and it has a bunch of expansions, it used to mean that core game must have been popular and warranted a bunch of expansions because enthusiasm. And I think it's a little harder to tell now whether uh, games are just uh, being front-loaded with expansions or not because they don't have the same sort of shelf life. And I think uh, it one way to do it is great like you know go to kickstarter and launch your thing then some people are going to have missed out on that kickstarter come back with an expansion offer the original game with the expansion bring in new audience and then also you know sell the expansion to the previous backers and you yeah know, make a nice bundle i think it's really cool it's like when i worked on uh glenmore it was kind of like that they launched glenmore yeah. 2 and then they came out with glenmore uh, to the highland games and that was allowing people who missed out on the original glenmore and then they could get the highland games all in big, one big bundle if they want and i think it's a good model. Um, it, do then i see this other one where it's like you know what we don't actually know how this is going to go we have such a big vision for this thing wouldn't it be a shame to not have all this you know the fifth player all this other stuff instead of waiting for people to go we want a fifth player and then (laughs) you later to actually release it it's like let's make it available now right so kind of bundle it all in and then it's like if people really want more after that sure let's let's make even more stuff and go back to Kickstarter with that after it's uh, proved itself So I see that kind of as a model. And I think with Kickstarter, the ability for somebody uh, who just wants to like really get behind a campaign, it's hard for them to throw extra money at it besides ordering like duplicate copies. go Man, I really want this thing to launch, get some stretch goals. It's like, and there's one pledge level, it's get the game. It's like, what do I do? Get another game. And so the, the opportunity to come in and get play mats to get extra stuff and throw your money at it to really see those stretch goals unlock and all that I think that helps uh, give that that backer more of a, an active role to push something along and they, they get excited about it, right? And I think that builds the general momentum as well.
0: Yeah. With licensing, um, you know, some of our listeners are, you know, budding game designers themselves and and looking at either a self-publishing or b trying to find a publisher that they can connect with. What's some advice you would give to somebody like that in terms of licensing what should they expect in terms of licensing their game to a to a publisher
1: okay so um so you're talking about like if if they have a prototype and they sign it to uh, a publisher yeah so there's kind of some some different things different models with that um one thing i would tell you is it's like there's some conventional wisdom it's like if you get a contract from a publisher just take it even if they turn your game upside down re-theme it whatever else it's so rare to get published just take it and even if they offer you nothing for it, just take it. And I think that's bad advice. Um, I, you know, I signed with the first publisher that looked at my game and it didn't work out very well for me. And, you know, later on seeing how different contracts work, uh, it didn't even have much upward potential. Like what they offered me was just a fixed sum. Like we will just buy this game from you forever for this yeah. amount. And and that's that's that. And so if it blew up on Kickstarter, if it went crazy in retail, I wouldn't see any more than this small some at that point and so it's like i don't think i would license a game under those circumstances uh then famously like uh, let's say uh, golden bell games or something like that that tries to find uh smaller indie publishers designers and offer them a contract that isn't usually as good as the contracts you would get through different sources so if a company like that wants to come out and reach out to you like that you kind of know that you'd be taking a hit losing a lot of control of your product uh, yeah. with a company that kind of consolidates uh, titles like that. And it wouldn't get the same fair treatment as somebody that's like, we want to make this our, you know, our Gen Con release of next year. This mm-hmm. is going to be our flagship. When you hear a publisher wants to get behind your title like that, uh, and then they say, you know, we'll offer you a royalties package. So it's like, you know, you get percent of the Kickstarter and, you know, we we want to do expansions for this. And you see upward potential and you see that they're going to sign their A team behind it. They mention two or three artists that they would like to get if they could. Um, you hear things like that you should get excited. Cause that's, that means that yeah. they're into it and they're not just trying to pick it up cheap and, you know, shotgun blast and see if it sticks sort of thing. So, um, so I guess the challenge if you, there too, yeah. is, is
0: if, if you're established, you have more, you have more negotiation power, obviously. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. if you're a new guy coming up, you've never published a game and you're looking for a publisher to take literally all the risk, and, and put all their funds into, into building your game, there's going to be some stuff you're going to have to give up. I imagine one is control, right? Mm-hmm. So you're, If they want to make changes, they have the right to make the changes and you're probably going to sign off on that. Um, you probably want some kind of a royalty deal. So I think that's good advice is you don't want a flat buyout because if the thing does become a huge success, you want to be able to get a piece of that ongoing success. I think the challenge becomes is if some designers who are new get too greedy or feel like they have more control than they probably do in the process, there could be missed opportunities as well. And that's kind of the balance. I guess they got to try to strike. Right. I don't know if the answers to that is quite frankly.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of that. Um, You know, so they tell you, you know, as a designer generally, don't be afraid to kill your darlings. If you have a, you know, this is the first mechanic that went into the game and that's what inspired it. That's the thing that actually gets gutted out of it. And all these tertiary mechanics stay. Yeah. stuff like that happens so you have to kind of be flexible and see that and i think um pretty early on you'll be able to get a sense of ask the publisher it's like where is this going to fit in your catalog what are you are you going to yeah. branch into a new area um and sort of things like that and might even ask them it's like well i know you're not going to use like my my clip art and probably not going to use my my name of the game are you intending to use this theme or a theme that's adjacent to it they'll probably answer that, um, during the pitch or assume thereafter, uh, before yeah. you, you, know, have ink on paper. So I think those are things to, um, to ask and think about. And if you really feel uncomfortable, um, with some part of it, like imagine that they acquire a commercial IP and they say, Hey, we really like your, your work replacement game. And you know, we got a Scooby-Doo license that we want to use for it. So it's going to be a Scooby-Doo work replacement game. It, that could be a really great thing or, or not so you'd have to really decide like uh is this going to have a commercial ip or are you just going to incorporate into one of your existing franchises of your Mm. you know universe you've built or is it going to be something fresh um i don't think there's anything wrong with asking that stuff and i don't think it's really too presumptuous um of a designer to get in there even a first-time designer to see those things because um if your first game comes out not good because maybe you know bad circumstances you're actually gonna have a lot harder time ever pitching your second game uh, because of that. And so you need to think about future you as well, that you want to be proud of your first game. So you can actually show that as a resume piece instead of like changing your name and not talking about it like somebody I know. So uh, I guess part of
0: that too, is even if, if like, do you have one game? Like you have one idea you've been working on for a long time, or are you a kind of like a serial designer where you have several ideas and you intend on making multiple different types of games those are probably going to give you two different camps too, as to how much you want to give up that baby. Right. If you know that, well, oh, I'm playing a bit of the longer game here, this title here for me, maybe I, I want to make sure my name is on a title that's, that's actually been published. So I have some you know, resume to actually use to help sell my future design, but if there's only one game and that's your baby uh, and you only really intend to do that one game, well, then maybe you don't want to give up as much um, control and you don't want to change the, you know, allow as many changes to to that game. as So it's yeah. uh It's just things to think about, I guess, as they go through the process, right? That's the, uh, that's the core. So being a serial designer yourself, uh, what's, what's next on deck? Do you have another game coming or like, what can people expect?
1: so yeah there's there's some stuff in the pipeline that's pretty exciting um so the one that's getting a little bit of traction on bgg now through a lot of um andrew bosley and vincent Dutre's artwork is unconscious mind so that's mm. a collaborative thing with uh, the fantasia studio with uh Yoma, the art director is also one of the co-designers and uh it's three greeks and then me i'm you know american but i'm actually greek by uh heritage so uh so we're we're working on that and it's set in um kind of a Freudian era Vienna when psychoanalysis and those sorts of uh, techniques were being developed. And so it's got this whole like very like uh, real world Vienna kind of thing, which is illustrated by Vincent de And then you've got the internal world of the dreams of the patients and these other things. That's Bosley's artwork. And there's some spots where they feather over and uh it's kind of a, a artistically ambitious uh design and so that's that's one that we're working a lot right now and that's going to be basically once endless winter is done with production and hopefully you know floating back um, all these you know logistics are crazy right now but um uh, yeah. that is their next title and that's that's one that we're really kind of putting like everything into um so that's a lot of fun to look at that um still kind of following up with a handful of other projects as a developer. Some of them are unannounced. Uh, some of them are announced. So it's, uh, you know, unfortunately it's like they can't talk about a, a few of them until they actually have some like BGG pages and stuff like sure. that gets um, checked out there like that. And then I've got um, a couple of my own designs. I haven't spent as much time pitching because there hasn't really been conventions and I've been really busy with these other projects. So I've got a handful of games that are in a good state, should find a nice publisher for. I just haven't um, been shopping around actually for the last while. So, uh, you know, one of these days I'll kind of dust off some of them, but, uh, I did pitch one recently to a publisher I like a lot. And, uh, we've, we've kind of negotiated a verbal deal. Like, yeah, let's do this in you know quarter 20, uh, first quarter of 2023. So that's, that's about how far out sometimes you have to wow. think. And that's actually soon. That's actually like, yeah, if we do that, that's only a year plus away where, um, you start talking about some other projects, it's like, Oh yeah, I like this game. Let's, uh, that'll, you know, we'll start that in two years. <laughs> it's like such a long arc sometimes.
0: Um, well, certainly if anybody wants to follow solar sphere, uh, I've put a link in the show notes so they can easily find it just by clicking on that. Or if you go to Kickstarter, just type in solar sphere and you'll find this game. As I said, there is about 70 hours left in this campaign. So if you want to get in on the action, looks like an awesome game. Check it out. Uh, John, I just want to thank you again for coming on the podcast. Uh, I'll be looking for Unconscious Mind and some of these other uh, designs of yours. And I want to wish you all the best in this coming year. Josh,
1: thank you so much. Yeah, Yeah, it's a great show.
0: Cheers. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply join the Facebook group Board Game Binge and you'll get access to live interviews giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.